Soren Kierkegaard was a famous Danish philosopher, theologian, and poet during the mid-1800s. He used to tell a story that has been told many different times and in many different ways throughout the years. The story is about a prince who was looking for his bride who would eventually share the throne with him as his queen. One day, while running an errand in a local village for his father, the king, the prince passed through a poor section that he normally would not travel. As he glanced out of the windows of the carriage to see the poor areas he was passing, his eyes fell upon a beautiful peasant maiden. He continued on his errand but could not stop thinking about this maiden that he saw. During the ensuing days, he often passed through the poor section of the village just to see her again. The more he passed by and saw her, the more he was overcome with wanting to be with her. But, as in most of these tales, there was a big problem. How would he, a prince, seek to pursue her, a peasant? He could order her to marry him, but even a prince wants his bride to marry him freely and voluntarily and not through coercion or force. He could put on his most splendid uniform, drive up to her front door in a spectacular carriage drawn by six horses. But if he did this, he would never be certain that the maiden loved him for who he was and was not simply overwhelmed with all of the splendor that was before her. Instead, he came up with another solution. He would give up his kingly robe He would move into the poor part of the village, not with a crown, but with the clothes of a peasant. He lived among the people, shared their interests, their concerns, spoke their language. He deeply cared for them. In time, the maiden grew to love him, not because he was a prince, but because of who he was and because he loved her first. While no story is an adequate depiction, this very simple, almost childlike story is a picture of what God has done in taking on humanity. The king, out of love, humbled himself to be a peasant. It is so much more than this fairy tale explains. The reality is the one who reigns over all, who creates, sustains, who speaks and it is, who is the Lord of glory, who is the definition of ultimate worth, took on lowly flesh. How much smaller of a picture is this simple story than what the king of all kings has done in taking on flesh? In John 1.14, we see this truth of what God has done. John does not begin his gospel like the other gospel authors. In fact, the gospel of John is different from beginning to end from the synoptic gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew begins with a genealogy showing that Jesus is from the line of David, and then he goes into the birth narrative. Mark begins with the baptism and then the ministry of Jesus. Luke begins with the birth narrative, but John goes back much further. He begins with the eternality and the deity of Jesus. In the first verse, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
The word never had a beginning. He always was, eternally existing in the past. And the word was with God, and the word was God. This shows the distinctness of the word from the Father, but also shows the unity of the word to the Father. Hence, this displays the triunity of our God. Jesus was with the Father in the beginning at creation, and Jesus was and is God. Listen, don't get past what this means. Rarely do I, do we allow Scripture to shake us the way that it should. Jesus, eternally existing, displays his glory and his worth. It means he is first. He is before. He is supreme. He is preeminent. Leading up to our verse for this morning, verse 14, we learn that Jesus is eternal. He is God. He was intimately involved in creation. He is life and he is light. And then John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the most concise yet robust statement on the incarnation. If you want one statement on the glory and the grace of God in the person of Jesus, this is it. This is the only hope we have in Christmas. The only hope we have. God in the flesh, the eternally existent, all-powerful, life-giving, light-providing, word became flesh. With words, God spoke life into existence in the beginning. Physical life came from God merely speaking. Now this word, who was there in the very beginning, giving life, takes on frail humanity in order to bring life once again. This word comes to speak spiritual life into the spiritual deadness we have brought This word comes to create in the midst of our lives that are void of of God and therefore void of life. Like he did in creation, God speaks. This is not physical life. His word comes giving spiritual life. There are three glorious aspects of the word who became flesh that I want to look at this morning. Three glorious aspects of the word who became flesh. For the sake of time, we will only look at these three, but we must remember that the whole act is full of glory. The first aspect is the glorious revelation. It's this glorious revelation. Jesus expressed as the word. It is astounding that God would even reveal himself to spiritually dead creatures at all. It is remarkable that he would choose in any way to reveal truth, life, himself to man who has made himself his enemy. But he does. And he does it through taking on flesh and being Emmanuel, God with us. Holy God with us. 
The word became flesh is the revelation of God from God. He is the utmost culmination of God's expressions. This revelation from God exceeds what any Israelite had witnessed in history. This word is God revealed to mankind in a way that the Old Testament Israelite could only dream of. The word, the revelation from God is God. While he humbles himself and he is not an earthly king, the word is, the word is God entering mankind in a climax of his revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ is a revelation unlike anything the world has witnessed before. Just because, just because mankind only saw a root out of dry ground, just because mankind in Jesus' day only saw a man struck down by God and afflicted, just because they saw no majesty, just because they saw him as a reject, just because they esteemed him not, just because they despised him, it does not take away from this one who came being the greatest revelation mankind had and has ever experienced. God is revealed in creation, but this word is not creation. Creation does not give the full word as the word made flesh does. Creation is stained by sin. The word is not. The word, Jesus, is glorious revelation in that the word is God beheld by human eyes. Again, this is astounding that the perfect plan of perfect God would be in this perfect word bearing the frailty of flesh. The all-powerful puts on the feeble, which displays not feebleness but power because in taking on such frailty, he can most beautifully display his glory and his power. Let me say that again. The all-powerful puts on the feeble, which displays not feebleness but power, because in taking on such frailty, he can most beautifully display his glory and his power. That's glory. Only God can show that through such weakness, strength is displayed. Only he can take on frailty to display glory. God literally took on the human body. He took on flesh that can be plagued by illness, disease, fatigue. The all-knowing took on learning. He did not sin, but he made mistakes. He didn't get up and walk on the first try as a baby. The ruler of all, the all-knowing one, learned the ruler of all subjected himself to the authority of human parents. The word, fully God and fully man. Let us not neglect either the deity or the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was fully God and fully man. This is God and man in one glorious person. This is the eternal son manifest in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Listen, how often do we think about the fact that Jesus really lived on this earth? He walked this earth. He stepped on this ground. 
This idea of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, this is the idea that God tabernacled among us. He dwelled here on this earth in mankind's presence as he had not before. The Old Testament Israelites had the tabernacle. This tabernacle was Yahweh establishing his presence among his people. But this dwelling of Yahweh is only a glimpse of this dwelling of God in the flesh. The greatest glory of Israel is that God God chose to tabernacle among them. Yet this glory of the word that tabernacled among mankind exceeds the tabernacle of old. Christ in human flesh was God's tabernacle. In and through Christ, God meets with man. And man gets to be among the tabernacle of God more than ever before. Charles Spurgeon says, God was never one with the tabernacle. But in Christ Jesus, he is one with us. How could this revelation be more glorious? God tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory. In his dwelling among us in the flesh, we are witnesses to his majesty. Glory that in the past had been reserved for the high priest to be in the midst of is now here among men. Alongside the chief of sinners, man is witness to the glory of God in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Glory is from the only one deserving of glory. This manifestation of the glory of God must mean everything to us. In the life and death of Jesus Christ, the glory of God is shining forth. Think about this. Think about just a few of the glorious revelations of God in the Old Testament, which, by the way, are fully amazing. They are incredibly miraculous events because of an all-glorious God. In Genesis 3... When God comes to speak to Adam and Eve, what did they do? They hid themselves because of their sin, because of their rebellion. They must hide from such glory and such holiness. In Exodus 3, Moses meets Yahweh through a burning bush, and Moses was afraid to even look at him because of the glory. In Exodus 34, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and the people are afraid of Moses because his skin was glowing from talking to God. And now think about what God does by taking on flesh and dwelling with us. The fact that finite, sinful man can be a witness to the glory of infinite, sinless God is crazy. That God would tabernacle, set up his tent among rebels against him is unbelievable. But it is the unbelievable reality of the glory of God in the flesh that man has seen. This is glory as of the only son from the father. He humbled himself to take on human flesh. And in this humbling, we behold his glory. This is the glorious glorious revelation of the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Another glorious aspect of the word who became flesh is his glorious grace. 
his glorious grace. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In his glorious revelation of the Son taking on flesh and establishing his presence among us, we see and experience his glorious grace. The grace of God is most clearly seen in the word made flesh. Jesus coming in the flesh made it possible for him to die. Without this, we don't know grace. We have no concept of grace. Just like this is the climax of God's revelation, it's also the climax of his grace in the word became flesh. He freely gives to those who are undeserving of any favor. Apart from Jesus Christ, no one has ever sought out God or taken one step toward God. Listen, you on your own have not made even the slightest nudge toward God. You on your own have not made even the slightest baby step toward God without him rescuing us first. The incarnation made it possible for us to experience life. Yes, he was there in creation, and not one thing was made apart from him that was made in physical creation. But this can't just be said about physical creation, because not one spiritually alive person who was once spiritually dead has been made apart from this word who became flesh. The word took on flesh and dwelt among us and made it possible for us to know life. Not one was made apart from him. He gave us physical life and yet we chose spiritual death. We need spiritual life. There is no salvation apart from the word taking on flesh. There is no spiritual life apart from God's interjecting himself into this world that he created. The son did not come to tell us about glorious grace. He actually is Full of grace. He came to bring grace to us who are infinitely undeserving. We must see the glory in God who would take on humanity in order to restore what we have destroyed. For a moment, do not even go beyond this. Don't even go yet to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Not, go, not even going beyond the fact that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. There is such grace. The fact that he was born into frail humanity, grace. The fact that he bore humanity to the fullest extent and had to learn, grace. The fact that he came as a child and displayed obedience for us, grace. But then to step beyond that truth, to the truth that God not only took on flesh and tabernacled among us, but that he was mocked, beaten, had the flesh that he took on ripped apart and died for the chief of sinners who he rescues from themselves is unfathomable grace. He is full of grace. If he were not, we never should behold his glory. We never should have beheld his glory and the word became flesh. 
If he had not, you and I would be condemned to hell, bearing the full righteous wrath of God. If he had not, I would have no concept of life and would only ever taste death eternally. It is glorious grace to recognize it as anything else is hell. The glory and the grace of God are on display in God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And church, we could speak forever, endlessly, about the riches of the grace of our God. But we must move on to this last point. The last glorious aspect of the word became flesh that I want to look at this morning is glorious truth. Glorious truth. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, he does not talk about glorious truth. He is glorious truth. Man is living for lies. Man is deceived and denies the truth. But God brings truth into this world in himself. He, be, he brings truth in a world submerged in lies. He intersects my life as a slave to sin where I am proclaiming loudly, this is the life. My sin is so good. It's so satisfying. And he brings truth to silence my lies. Jesus Christ, as this supreme and glorious revelation from God, as God, is a revelation of complete truth. God does not reveal himself in a way that is any bit deceitful because he is truth. He is God who does not lie. Titus 1-2. The word has now been spoken, and it is a word of truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. Do you understand that your lies have been silenced? Do you understand that, that sin that cannot satisfy is no longer screaming that it can? The lie of living for self, indulging in sin after sin after sin. The, the lie of pursuing pleasure after pleasure with no real satisfaction. The lie of living out death has been silenced. C.S. Lewis said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the, author, the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. But God puts our simple pleasures that are fleeting, he puts them to rest and the word became flesh. God has silenced these lies. It cannot be any other way. God made known to a lying world the truth of reconciliation through the word became flesh. 
he made known the truth of his glorious grace through Jesus Christ. This is reality. We should think that this truth is unbelievable, but we must believe it, for it is truth. It is real. The word became flesh, providing glorious truth that we can fully rely on because he is truth. As one commentator puts it, Jesus Christ is the hope that someday there would be a word from God that would make everything clear. Oh, and is there ever clarity amidst our lives that can only ever give confusion? God shouts clarity in the person of Jesus because the truth is clarifying. That's what truth does. It makes clear. He is the glorious truth, the clarity, the reality that we must have. Without this revelation of God, from God, we do not know truth. The glorious truth is that though you and I are rebels against a holy God, he took on flesh and died an undeserving death and rose from the grave so that you and I can receive undeserved grace and truth. God, the only one deserving of all glory, was viewed as our sin so that we can be seen as his righteousness. God, in his infinite wisdom, revealed himself in this way. He humbled himself to take on humanity in one person, fully God and fully man, and we must see glory. The glorious revelation, glorious grace, and glorious truth of God in the flesh. Rarely, rarely, is this my focus as I approach Christmas? Rarely am I thinking about the magnitude of the glory of God and taking on flesh and becoming sin for me. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. I can't think of a better reminder for us this Sunday morning before we celebrate the word became flesh. There's nothing greater. Let's pray.